Have you heard the phrase, don't look at me? You heard that phrase? Have you ever used that phrase? I think I have before. It's oftentimes used uh, when somebody feels like they're being accused of something and they want to absolve themselves from all blame. So they say, don't look at me. Don't point at me. Uh, In fact, a lot of times when a preacher, uh, and I'm not speaking from personal experience per se, but a lot of times when a preacher comes up and looks out over the audience, he sees a group of people, or maybe one or two people, who have this mentality. The don't look at me attitude. Because a lot of times, Scripture says things, uh, says passages, says things that hurt our feelings. Pa- the, the words of God are always going to be offensive to certain people. And they're always going to, people, uh, going to be people who say, don't preach that to me. In fact, in the book of Amos, chapter 7, the prophet Amos was preaching a sermon that was very unpopular in his day. It was while the kingdoms were divided between Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was up in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was preaching very, a very blunt message that said, if you don't repent, the people are going to be taken away into captivity, and the king is going to be killed. This was a very unpopular message, especially for the king. And so through messenger, the king said to him in chapter 7 there, verses 12 and 13, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Their response to the sermon is basically a don't preach that around here, go somewhere else. And that's what the king said to Amos. He said, go down to Judah. If you want to be preaching these messages, don't do it here. Do it somewhere else. It's the don't look at me, don't point at me attitude. In fact, it reminds me of a poem I read. And I'd like to read a portion of it uh, right, uh, right now. And it's a poem written by someone named Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And it goes as follows. Preach about the other man, preacher. The man we all can see. The man of oaths, the man of strife, the man who drinks and beats his wife, who helps his mates to fret and shirk when all they need is to keep at work. Preach about the other man, preacher, not about me. Because the word of God can be offensive, because there will always be people who respond adversely to it, just like they were in the days of the Old Testament in the book of Amos, just like they do today, because of this, and because the teachings of God can always be, will always be hard and difficult, a certain problem has arisen. People have steered away from the truth because it's difficult, and they've gone a different path, and they've started preaching instead of what is truthful but might be hurtful. they decided to tickle ears. They decided to please the people on the pews. They decided instead of sticking to the word of God, they decided to go after cleverly devised tales. And it's that very phrase, cleverly devised tales, that Peter uses in his second epistle. In fact, it's the epistle in which he warns his readers, be warned, beware of false teachers. 
Beware of those people who have turned aside from the hard truth of Scripture and have begun preaching what is convenient, what is appealing to a mass audience, what is lucrative for them to gain in riches or in wealth. He says, beware of these people. And that's really the whole point of 2 Peter. In fact, uh, go ahead and turn there, if you will. Uh, We're going to be looking at this book and we're going to be uh, delving into it. And really what the book is all about is this warning. But there's a lot more to it than that. We're going to delve into the verses here. Second Peter. We read it last week in our New Testament challenge. I hope you've been keeping up with it. Uh, in fact, um, we also read a parallel passage in the book of Jude. And so uh, a lot of what we read, a lot of what we dealt with is this idea of false teachers. Now... Peter delves into it and he starts, let's start in chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. Where it reads, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance, as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter doing here? He's reaffirming the words that had been spoken by the other apostles. He is reaffirming the words that had been spoken by Jesus and passed on from them. He's reaffirming his own witness. He's saying, I was there when the transfiguration happened. I was there when God God called Jesus his beloved son. And he's saying, therefore, everything that we have passed on, all of these teachings we have passed on, all of this message. In fact, in chapter 3, he speaks of Paul's letters and he reaffirms those teachings as well. He's saying that all of what the apostles have passed on is complete. It's finished. There will no, there won't be any more revisions to it. There will be no more revelations to be had. The, the scripture or the letters and the teachings of the apostles are the finality of the revelation of God. Period. End of story. But he's also aware that these false teachers are still coming. These people who will add. These people who will take away. These people who will follow, as he says, cleverly devised And he he gives them a a real warning of this in chapter 2. In fact, chapter 2 here, the the center part of this book, is a stern condemnation of false teachers. And and also a description of what to look for in these false teachers. I'd like us to read the first three verses there, where it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, who, excuse me, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their creed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not Asleep. Now, there are uh, several important things I want to get from those three verses. First of all, Peter says that this isn't anything new. 
False teachers have been around since the Old Testament, and here they are coming back, and he's warning them they're about to show up among the first century church. So he says it's nothing new, but he also kind of gives a description about them. He goes a little bit into their motives. He says that they want to delve into sensuality. They are greedy. They're looking to exploit the believers. And then also he tells us very plainly, and he's going to go on in the next few verses to really uh, hammer this point home, their false teaching will lead to destruction. Not only to the destruction of things around them, but it will bring destruction upon themselves. And he's very clear about this and he's very stern. But I want to draw our attention to verse 2, where it says something that is disturbing to me. Verse 2, he says, Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In other words, when the people of the world who are outsiders looking in, when they see these false teachers, it's going to lead them to speak ill of the church as a whole. I don't know about you, but that's sad for me to hear. Because there are many false teachers out in the world, and there are many who have come to mind. One group specifically comes to mind uh, when, I, when I think about this idea. And, and really, they've made themselves into the perfect example, which is why I feel no guilt in, in, in sharing their name, the Westboro Baptist Church. They've, as you probably know, this is a group in Kansas who travels all over the country, and they show up at soldiers' funerals or at uh, the funeral of uh, homosexuals who have died, and they hold signs that say, that person is burning in hell. And they hold up signs that say God hates them. In fact, you see on the sign that this young, impressionable, impressionable man is holding, it says, thank God for dead soldiers. When I was in high school, this group came to my high school. And uh, they, because my high school started this group called the Gay Straight Alliance, okay, it was, it was an organization in the school that you, know, you could volunteer and be a part of. Just like there, there was a Christian group in the school, they had a group called the Gay Straight Alliance. And uh, these people heard about it, and they showed up outside of school and began screaming and uh, began accosting all the students who were trying to get in and just go to class. And it got pretty out of hand. In fact, uh, a lot of the students began to retaliate. They began throwing things, throwing rocks. It became quite rough as I know at one point a trash can was kind of tossed into the crowd. It became so out of hand that police had to step in there, as it often does with this group. And there it was, a student in high school having this just taken place. And all these relationships I've been building up, all of these, all of these building blocks that I've been trying to gather so that people would actually care what I have to say and what the Bible has to say because they've seen my loving nature, they've seen that I'm kind, they've seen that I'm a, a constant Christian one who actually uh, practices what I preach. I've been trying to build up relationships with them and all of a sudden all of that credibility was gone. And they didn't want to hear what I had to say about the Bible or what the Bible had to say more specifically to them because this group had come and although they had professed to know Christ, they didn't heed the words of Christ when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is just one example of many. But it's sad and disturbing 
that the church can be so muddled down or the reputation of the church can be so muddled down because of all the false doctrines out there. You know, when people look at the, how many denominations there are, a lot of them will either, will, at best, they'll say, well, they can't all be right. And at worst, they'll say, well, they're all wrong because they're all fighting each other and none of them know what the Bible says. Why is it so complicated, they would say. And that causes, once again, a lot of people to be led astray. So what is our solution? Well, some people have shifted all the way. They've swung the pendulum all the way to the other side. And they said, well, because the people who are outside looking in see this problem, we need to start agreeing with everyone. That everything's okay, that we can all just, just agree to disagree, and that there's no right or wrong doctrine. But that's not what Peter says. Peter's very stern in, sec- in here his second chapter. In fact, in, in verses 4 through 10, he lists off three examples of when God brought down swift destruction on his enemies. And then, at the latter part of verse 10, starting there, and really through the end of the chapter, he starts describing these people. And when you look at these descriptions, he's very harsh. I think it's important we understand this. How seriously the New Testament writers took false teaching. And we need to take it seriously as well. Starting in verse 10, he says, he he describes them as daring or self-willed. And he, he uses an example that they're, they're very much willing to revile angels, he says. They have no respect for authority. In verse 12, he says that they're like unreasoning animals or creatures of instinct. They, they can't control themselves. They don't know of, of the things in which they are speaking against. In verse 13, he says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. I believe that that means, in other, in other words... That even though they claim to be Christians, they don't care to hide their sinful practices. They claim to be Christians, but they don't care if the world sees all of their sinful reveling. So that's what I think what it means when he says they, they care to revel in the daytime. He continues to describe them. Verse 13, he says they're stains. Listen to the harshness of this. He says they're stains, they're blemishes, and then he says they're deceitful. And then there in verse 14, he continues on uh, with this very harsh terminology. He says that they have eyes full of adultery that never cease to sin. And then finally in verse 15, he says they've gone astray because they love the wages of unrighteousness. These are the types of people that Peter was warning against that would show up in the church. But let's be honest, these are the people we see today. Because he warned that they would show up then... And now here we are 2,000 years later, and they've arrived, and they've been here a while. We see people who are exploiting followers because of, uh, out of riches, out of wealth. You know, sadly, there's a cult that shares our name, almost. They're called the United Churches of Christ. It's a cult that literally exploits and manipulates their followers out of wealth and out of property. There are... We, we see these types of people everywhere. These, uh, there are televangelists, not all of them, but there are some who are out there to exploit, out there to gain riches. Then there are others who are simply becoming relaxed on sinful practices because they want to go with what is uh, appealing to, uh, to get as many people into their building as they can. There are people who are, uh, there are churches out there 
who are succumbing to the pressures of their culture surrounding them. There are churches who have been fooled into false doctrine concerning salvation, concerning worship, concerning uh, family lifestyle, concerning church leadership. The list goes on and on. But how do we respond to this? Is, is the real question we need to ask. Because we know this is out there. We know that Peter is very harsh and very stern in this combination of these people. And we know these people are out there, but we need to ask, how do we as a people respond? Well, I believe he tells us in three separate passages here in, in this one letter. And those three passages, two of them actually bookend chapter 2. Remember, chapter 2 is the harsh condemnation and the description of them. And at the very end of chapter 1 and at the very beginning of chapter 3, two passages that bookend chapter 2. He says essentially the same thing in both of these passages. And then there's a third passage that I'd like us to look at. I believe all three of these, when we put them together, tell us what Peter thinks we should do. Let's look at that first passage. Right there at the end of chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now remember, this was written before the age of electricity. Written before you could walk into your house and flip on a light switch. I believe it was written before even there were street lamps. Now, obviously, they wouldn't have been electric, but they might have had oil street lamps. But I don't believe there were at that point, or at least in that culture. So when it became nighttime, you stayed inside. And you also had to prepare by getting a lamp and making sure you had oil for that lamp. And you wouldn't waste oil. You wouldn't light up several lamps. You would light up one lamp and you put it in the center of the room. So it could bring light to the entire house. You know, Jesus uses this as a metaphor later for the church, right? We are the light of the world, or a light, a lamp that is set upon a table. But when it was dark, all you could do in this day and age was stay inside where the light was and wait until day. This is the picture that he's painting here. The picture is that we are in a darkened world, and I believe we can all agree. It's been dark ever since Jesus left. In fact, it says when Jesus came, he was the light in the darkness. He's gone, and now here we are. Yes, we're the lights of the world, but let's be honest. You turn on the news, and you're going to see very quickly how dark our world really is. It's nighttime right now. But we have a lamp. We have a lamp we need to be paying attention to. A lamp that he says we need to stick to, that we need to hold fast to. And I believe what he's saying is that lamp, he says it's the prophetic word. I believe he's speaking very specifically about about the scriptures. It's nighttime, it's dark, and the only thing that's going to light our way, the only thing that we can hold fast to, that we can understand or that we need to stick with, is God's word. That's it. It's our lamp. It's our shining light. In fact, in the second passage, he says, uh, he says it in a slightly different way. There in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now this is called, uh, this you would call the purpose statement of the letter. Because he says, I'm writing to you for, and then he lists off the reason. So this is an important verse for you to underline, for you to highlight if you, if you do, 
you'd like to do that in your Bible. Because this is where he tells us why he's writing what he's writing. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you will be reminded. So that you will remember. What? Verse 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This is why I believe you can definitively say in context that he's talking about the Bible as a whole. Because what does he say there? He breaks it down. He says, first of all, the holy prophets, which was often a euphemism. Uh, maybe that's a more negative connotation with that term. But it was a euphemism uh, or a symbol for the Old Testament, for the Old Testament Scriptures. When somebody said the Law and the Prophets, they were talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. So he's talking about the Old Testament, but he also says the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and there's a key here, spoken by your apostles. So now he's looping in here the teaching of Jesus, and I believe the Gospels here, but I believe he's also looping in here the teachings that were passed down by the apostles. You look at the context, he's very supportive of what Paul says. He's very uh, supportive of what he's, he says the apostles have passed down. I believe he's literally saying here, we need to remember, we need to hold fast to, once again, our lamp, God's Word. The Bible is the only thing that, will, that we can hold on to in this world. It's the only thing that's going to keep us steadfast in the face of false teaching. So when somebody starts trying to trick us into false teaching, our response is very simple. What does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? And that's where we get our answer. Now I want us to be clear here. And, and, and we do this by going to the third passage. And it's in chapter 3. It's the very end of the book. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, I believe he makes it clear. It's not just about knowing uh, and reading and paying attention to God's Word. He says very specifically there's more to it. Let's go ahead and read. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. And by the way, when he says knowing this beforehand, he's speaking of uh, the, the fact that Jesus is coming back. He's just talked about this in this chapter. He's gone over a detailed account as to what will happen. And now he's saying, because you know Jesus is coming back, he says, let that be a reminder to you so you can be all the more diligent. So he says there, verse 17, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So he says, be on your guard, be on the alert. And he says, don't fall from your steadfastness. Or in other words, be, remain steadfast. And then in verse 18, I believe is very important. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He said in those first two passages, Hold fast the Word of God. Remember the Word of God. As if it's a lamp. It's your only light. And you're waiting for the light to come. For day to break. In other words, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And therefore, we need to hold fast the Word of God. But what does that really mean? Does that mean simply reading His Word? Does that simply mean knowing 
portions of his work? No, I believe it all comes down to what it says in verse 18. We need to be growing in God's work. How do we remain steadfast in the midst of false teaching? Well, we need to continue to grow in God's work. That's how we make sure not to be tricked. That's how uh, we, we can remain steadfast with, uh, without the, the, when these errored men, these unprincipled men trying to steer us away. When we are continually growing in God's word, that's when we have a proper defense. And that's the very reason that the elders have uh, come, came forward at the beginning of the year with the New Testament challenge. With the, the goal in mind that we would all, as a congregation, read the New Testament together. And it was made as easy as possible. One chapter a day, with weekends off so you can catch up or so you can study. But really that's supposed to be just a stepping on point to a habit. A habitual study of God's Word. A habitual growth in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. It's going to take study. But if we're not growing, if we're not moving forward, we're just sliding backwards. And if we're not growing in God's Word, I believe we are susceptible to that false teaching. I'm reminded one more time of that poem I read at the beginning, where it said, Preach about the other man, preacher, the man we all can see, the man of oaths, the man of strife, the man who drinks and beats his wife, who helps his mates to fret and shirt when all they need is to keep at work. Preach about the other man, preacher, not about me. A lot of times we in the church, when we talk about false teaching, it can become a sermon that's talking about the other guy. The other group out there that's doing this, that, and the other. And I'm not speaking ill of condemning false teaching. Of course, Jesus, of course, Peter, of course, Paul, of course, all of the apostles were very stern against false teaching. But to only preach a sermon up here that simply says this is what other people are doing wrong would be disingenuous to what Peter has to say here. Because Peter warns them about these false teacher, teachers. He condemns them, but he also leaves a charge for his readers. And that charge is that we need to hold fast to God's Word. We need to be studying God's Word. If we have questions, we need to be delving into the Word, into the passages, delving deep for the answers. Each and every one of us individually need to be growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That is how we can stand uh, with defense against the false teachers. That is the charge that Peter leaves his readers with. The very last thing that he says to his audience is grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. So let's make sure to remember. Let's make sure to pay attention to that one. If you're here tonight and you've been struggling with the study of God's Word, if you've been struggling with uh, the New Testament challenge, you know, uh, we know in all honesty it's not too much to ask to read one chapter every day. But it can be hard. We're busy. And a lot of times if we don't make it a top priority, we can fall behind. And then once we're behind, we, you know, if, you, if you stay behind long enough, it feels impossible to catch up. But I hope that you will at least join back in with where we're at. And you'll begin to delve deep 
and begin to grow in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior. If you're here and you struggle with that, we're going to have an invitation song that is for you. We also want to leave the invitation open for any who have not yet obeyed the gospel. There are many false teachings out there concerning salvation. We know that the true matter, the true word tells us that you've got to hear the word. You've got to believe in it. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be willing to confess it. You need to be willing to repent of your sins. In other words, turn away from that sinful lifestyle which you are living in, and you need to be willing to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then from that point onward, you need to continue to grow in your knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Continue walking down this path, waiting for daylight to come. That be your need, please come as we stand and as we sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, John, for that lesson. For those Christians who were unable to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, if you will come and take any of these pews at the front, we will serve you. To prepare their minds, we'll be singing hymn number 622. 622.
Tell me the story of Jesus. <clears throat> Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings on earth. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so
next opportunity that we have over there is on the 27th of November. Thank you. Let us be standing as Brother Wayne Robinson reads our closing prayer. 